Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. This is Jim Hemphill. I'm joined today by Director of Photography David Egby, ACS, who is here to talk about his work on the new sci-fi film, Riddick. Riddick is the third movie in a series that began with Pitch Black in 2000 and continued with 2004's The Chronicles of Riddick. This time around, the title character, played by Vin Diesel, finds himself stranded on a barren planet after being double-crossed and left for dead. When he activates an emergency beacon to signal help, he instead attracts mercenaries who want to kill Riddick in order to retrieve the bounty that's on his head. Another group of mercs with their own agenda for finding Riddick land on the planet soon afterwards, setting in motion a series of spectacular action sequences that involve not only the ruthlessly violent human characters, but a series of terrifying alien creatures. Riddick marks David Egby's return to the franchise. He also shot Pitch Black, for which he was named Cinematographer of the Year by the Australian Cinematographer Society. Riddick is also the latest in a long line of terrific action films from Egby, who began his career as director of photography on the iconic cult classic Mad Max, and went on to fruitful collaborations with directors Simon Winsor and Rob Cohen on films including Quigley Down Under, Daylight, and one of my all-time favorite movies, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. A master at shooting screen violence, David also happens to be an accomplished cinematographer on comedies and family films like Underdog and Scooby-Doo. His versatility was surely put to the test on Riddick, a film that plays like three movies in one and poses a number of unique visual challenges, so I'm delighted to have him here to talk about his work on the picture. Uh, first off, give me a little background on how this came to you. Obviously, you had worked with director David Tui on the first Pitch Black. Uh, when did he contact you about this new installment? Well, I heard in the grapevine that Riddick was happening and it had gone off the planet for nine years, never to um, resurface. I read in the, in the trades where uh, Riddick and David Tui is about to do, do Riddick. And, um, uh, of course, I got onto my agent and, coincidentally, uh, David Tui about the same time contacted me to be his DP on Riddick. And primarily, I guess, uh, because the success of Pitch Black compared to Chronicles, uh, they wanted to go back to the bare roots and uh, wanted that same stylized, hard-edged look. And um, I was very pleased to be approached because I was a, a bit put out when I didn't get Chronicles to Riddick because I would love to have done it, but that's the way it goes. And um, it had been some years since I'd worked with David and uh, he's, you know, he's good to work with and he's a smart guy and uh, I was very pleased to be approached. Well, you mentioned that uh, you know they wanted to go back a little bit more to the roots of the first film, but you also had, uh, there are also some aspects in which this film is different from the first movie and from the second movie, which you didn't shoot, as you said. So when you were in the initial planning stages and discussions with David Tui, what were your thoughts on distinguishing this film from the others in the series? I mean, what did you want to keep from the other movies and what did you want to do differently? One of the first things David said to me, and I totally agreed, is we do not want to top, top light this movie. You know, It's very easy to go into a stage and just top light it and, and just shoot in every direction. We wanted to maintain this this back edge, this one sun source. Um, the similarities to Pitch Black in the script are, are, are very obvious and we just wanted to maintain that alien, arid, hard, um, harsh landscape, lunar landscape. And of course on Pitch Black I did it with film and did a bleach bypass um, system, whereas now I did it with lighting. And um, it's not a grade, it's done purely by lighting and um, all on stage in Montreal. And we just wanted to maintain that same feel, the same look, the same hard edge. And, and lighting for Vim with 
his reflective eyes is is quite a challenge because you know you can have a room full of people and they've all got to you got to see their eyes, but Vin you don't, you know, and he's in the same lighting environment, so it's quite a challenge to work with Vin and 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 he's very susceptible and very open to any 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 suggestions I make. Uh, to make the eyes work, and of course, on on Chronicles of Riddick and on Riddick, the third one, this, the eyes were done by CG. Um, in the first pitch black, where we had no money, and uh, we did a lot of it in more black contacts, and I had little flashlights with mirrors, and and so a lot of the eyes were done on film, as were a lot of the effects on the first film. Well, one of the things that I really liked about this movie is that. Uh, it kind of gives you several different types of action movie in one. Like the first act is sort of a Jeremiah Johnson-esque like man in nature movie where it's really just Vin Diesel, you know, alone against the elements and against the creatures and all that. Then it becomes a different kind of story when the bounty hunters come and they're trying to kill Riddick and he's, you know, in a cat and mouse game with them. And then, you know, I don't want to give away where it goes after that, but it sort of becomes a third type of action movie as it goes. And I was wondering what your approach was in terms of you know, keeping visual continuity throughout the film, but also responding to the different dramatic demands of each section. In some ways, um, Riddick, even though it's a challenging production, uh, it, was a, it wasn't a very long shoot. Compared to Pitch Black, it was reasonably easier to achieve. Pitch Black was almost like a masterclass in cinematographer lighting, where you start with this this blown out arid landscape that we shot in the Australian Outback, and you end up lighting people with bottles uh, filled with glowworm juice. You know, sort of that was an a, a, a extreme challenge because the movie gets darker and darker and darker, and you know, and there's glowworms and there's there's um, 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 optic fiber cables and the sources of illumination we could use. R- Riddick, on the other hand, did have. Um, a, a sun source or a moon source throughout and um, we shot it on stage in Montreal. One of the approaches, one of the problems with the film initially is that we were shooting in Michel Trudel Studios in, in Montreal and the film had a, a bit of a financial hiccup and it was shut down for a month and um, then we went back and uh, by the time we went back the studios were uh, committed to another film. So we had to get out and uh, so I go from a 55 foot ceiling grid um, system to a 35-foot warehouse where they shot films like 300. And when you're using the total floor space of a warehouse as your set, and it's only 35 feet high, it's just a huge challenge to try and get a lighting source, which I didn't have to concern myself too much on Riddick because of the bleach bypass gave the effect, uh, on Pitch, on black. pitch black, sorry. Um, whereas I'm in a situation where you want one shadow, and you, you, you don't want to have multi-shafts of light coming through all the atmosphere and, uh, light, with the lighting, with the smoke, with the dust, with the rain. So in, in ways, it was less challenging than pitch black. Well, so you shot everything on, on stages, which means on the one hand, you know, you've got total control, which is liberating. But I would also think that the freedom of creating a sci-fi world from scratch could also be somewhat daunting in the sense that your options are, are limitless. So I guess, you know, you... you you said, you know, you started out with saying you didn't want top light. What were some of your other kind of rules that you guys set out for yourselves or starting points to create this visual well, you landscape? Know, uh, David Tui is, is, is a very good visionary and he knows what he wants. And it's like on Pitch Black when he came up with the idea of Bleach Bypass, I had, had never even um, um, dabbled in it. Um, I'd seen a couple of movies that he used it, but we used it in a totally reverse way than films like Seven had used it. And um, David Tui and I totally agreed that we wanted to maintain this, this backlit um, one light source feel. So, you know, the problem was how do you, you light such a big floor space with a source that looks like a one sun source? 
So I came up with the idea of using lames, gold lames, uh, which I'd used before for a lunar landscape. But the 35-foot ceiling was a huge uh, handicap to deal with. So I ended up, we ended up purchasing 40 20-foot by 8-foot gold lames, gold one side and white the other side, which I rigged like 20-foot intervals and about six rows across the whole ceiling space. And they were ang- they could angle those at 45 degrees. You could flip them 180. You could turn them any direction you wanted. Opposite each lames, I had a, a, a lighting system which on winches with two 10Ks and the 10Ks had gels and we would shoot the 10Ks into the lames and then direct it back to the uh, direction we wanted to light. And the reason I went out with that because, as I said before, I didn't want to have light shafts, I didn't want to have multi-shadows, I wanted it to look like one light source. So it's quite a unique way of lighting a whole studio and it meant that we had even light throughout and it was backlit, sidelit, whatever direction you wanted and then I would have gold for the backlight and then I'd flip the other side to white give a little bit of fill. How closely do you have to work with the production designer? Work very close with Joseph Nemec. We had done a film prior to this uh, in Wales, uh, a movie called titled Ironclad, which is a medieval um, shoot. Uh, and uh, Joseph uh, had to recycle some of the sets, which he had to do on Riddick. You know, this wasn't a big budget movie. We didn't have a lot of time. There was uh, limited stage space. So Joseph was able to design the set spaces, which uh, they sound simple, but designing a lunar landscape with fumaroles and and caverns and mud pools and uh, is tricky. And he was able to recycle those sets in a matter of days for different locations. I think, for instance, where the mud pool is, where the demon is slashing a Riddick, I think we used that particular set for about five or six different moments in the movie. Just redressed and relit different way, redressed. So the collaboration with Joseph was very close. Well, and it sounds like you guys were actually creating more things practically on set than might be the norm sometimes. You know, nowadays, you know, there's such a tendency to go towards CGI for everything. Um, on this movie, what what was the balance for you? I mean, were, you, was, were there a lot of digital effects. I mean, I'm assuming that a lot of the creatures and things like that were created digitally. So how much of what we're seeing on screen was actually there on set when you were shooting? The majority of the uh, creatures, probably you know, 90, 85, 90% was CG. We did have a puppet. We had a puppet jackal, which a really character Vin fights in the opening sequence. And, uh, you know, the master of puppetry and, and fast movement and and uh, shaky camera uh, can hide a lot of ills. And um, we did, m- all the creatures were um, were CG in the mud pools. But of course, you had a guy in there with a with a stick and, uh, and you know, a dummy tail creating the, the, the ripples in the water and uh, which they, you know, they, they erase out later on. Uh, and all the set extensions, like for the day stuff, all, I had greens obviously around for the day extensions. And for the night sequences, I just had blacks. And I just brought blacks around and most of it, was, we had rain and the backlit rain hides a lot of of the, 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 the problems with seeing any blacks, any ripples or any wrinkles in the black material. Sometimes you saw it when the lightning strikes went off. That was dealt with later in post. They had to um, erase a few crease, creases in the uh, black serang hanging around the set because we they weren't big set spaces. And as I said, all the sets went to the edge of, of the floor space. You know? Would you say your job as a cinematographer, how's it different or how does it expand on a film that has so many digital effects? I mean, is that does that really change your job at all or...? create special challenges? I think having a, a close communication with the director and knowing what's coming up and, and studying the script is, 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 is paramount. Um, I try to maintain a continuity as if I'm shooting outside, I'll try and steer the director towards backlit or sidelit rather than into a frontlit situation. You know, front light's two-dimensional, backlight is, and sidelight is three-dimensional, so I always try and maintain that, even with the lighting on set, on stage. 
approaching a film, though, I, look, I didn't approach it any other way than I'd approach any other film, I think. Trying to create something different is always a challenge. This is a, this was only my second film, uh, digital film. And you know, having the, those people backing you up, those digital technicians, is a plus, you know, and it helps you create a certain look. I don't really go out straight into a film thinking, well, I'm going to do something totally different. It just seems to fall into place, you know. And, 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 and obviously you have your own interpretation. When I read a script, I can visualise it straight away how I want it to look. And I, unfortunately, because of Pitch Black and my relationship with David, I already knew the sort of film he wanted. He didn't want a Chronicles of Riddick, he wanted another Pitch Black. So I knew which way to aim at. And um, even though it was on, on stage, minus 25 degrees in Montreal outside, but um, it, was, uh, it was a good experience. I really enjoyed being able to create, as all cinematographers do, create the whole imagery. I wasn't the, at the mercy of Mother Nature. You know, Mother Nature depicts often how you photograph. Being able to create the whole look on the whole movie was a plus, you know, and, and, and that's, that was a challenging, but a good experience. And what kind of camera did you shoot with? First time I'd used the Alexa. Uh, we recorded RAW, uh, RAW file, which was just uh, fantastic because I was able to switch from raw to log C and, and see the difference and just see how much detail there were in the blacks. So Ari Alexa, Codex Raw and Master Primes. Um, being my only, my second feature film, digital feature film, because I'm a film guy, I've you know, worked on 50 movies and they've all been filmed apart from Ironclad, which I shot on the Genesis. And that was, it's, it's, a learn, it's a learning curve. I was a bit scared when I started with the Alexa because of the 800 ISA, but the math's the same, you know. Lighting's lighting, good lighting, bad lighting. Lighting's the same and, the, and all the math works the same. And um, obviously there are some restrictions with the Alexa, but boy, I was pretty impressed with the system. And what made you choose that camera as opposed to a Genesis or any number of other digital cameras? Mainly because it was the new technology and having shot with a Genesis, I wasn't blown away by the result and all the, the hangings on, whereas the, the, the Aeroflex Alexa was a compact unit and we could record RAW, which was a primary thing. You know, we were able to shoot, you know, with 512 gigabyte, I think it was, on the, uh, on the, on the, on the memory of it. We, we could change speeds without any problem, without having to change data packs. We had a, a, lot, a lot of Technocrane, had a Technocrane for the whole movie, and it meant that we didn't have to keep bringing the camera down. We could record 45 minutes of, uh, of, of uh, footage, you know, raw footage, before we had to even think about bringing the camera off, you know. So, uh, and, you know, I hadn't worked with the Alexa, I'd worked with the Genesis, so I, I wanted to try it out. I'm, I'm keen to do shoot with the studio, with the full gate, and uh, and maybe one day the F65, you know, sort of, uh, uh, the, the sky's the limit, really, isn't it? And so on a film like this that's, you know, heavily action-oriented, heavily effects-oriented, how many of your decisions do you have to make before you ever even get to the set? I mean, is a movie like this heavily storyboarded and prepared for? I mean, you know, how, how, much, how many decisions have to be made before you even get there and how much can you sort of respond to what the actors are doing on the day? A huge amount of decisions have to be made in prep. Over the years, I've learned that the more pre-production is getting shorter, but it's more important. All your questions have to be answered. The days of standing around waiting for things doesn't happen. All, all I found that, you know, apart from a cinematographer's job being like, 60% delegation. I find that pre-production is so important and you know you can't get there and have problems. Everything has to be sorted out beforehand and as far as storyboards uh, we had a very very good storyboard artist who did a wonderful job not only um, uh, uh, 
structure, but also the illustrations themselves. You know, his illustration of the end sequence where where Vin Diesel, is, Riddick is fighting the creatures on Demon Peak. His drawings are so graphic and so good. All but all I had to basically look at was was his drawings and emulate that, and uh, uh, w- which was easy enough to do from a hard lit backlit situation with a lot of water and rain. Uh, storyboards important to certain to certain extent. Um, uh, you know, we all in pre-production start looking at storyboards every day, but as the shoot goes on, it's funny how it gets less and less. It's not like a commercial where you put them on a pegboard and you start striking them off, you know, sort of, because things don't always go the way you want. So it's a good guide. It's a, it's, it's not the Bible, but it, storyboarding is a good guide. Well, and so, you know, you said pre-production is becoming shorter yet more important. How about post-production? What's your role in the post-production process in a movie like this? Uh, I'm called in when the DI process is about to start. Uh, which is wonderful, you know, the, these, the, being able to have a, a say and be able to see what you're going to get, not having to worry about looking at neg analyzers and, and, and sit through film dailies at, um, you know, at real time making longhand notes and looking at numbers at the bottom of the screen, those days have gone. And, 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 and quite rightly, because, you know, I think film grading um, on, an, on looking at rolling film was probably the, the most archaic, process of filmmaking left. Once the cameras change, once the film stocks change, once the, the, the lights change, you know, and it became a much more a swifter um, system and more sensitive to sit there and go through days and days and come back every second day and look at another Tim agenda or another, it, it was archaic, you know, and now to do a DI, whether it's film or whether it's digital um, recording, it's just so great for DPs, it gets you involved, you know, you can have a, a creative say rather than rely totally on looking at things you don't really understand. I want to ask you about the the aspect ratio as it relates to exhibition, because I saw this movie at an IMAX screening where the composition seemed to change throughout the movie. Sometimes there was masking at the top and the bottom of the frame to create a scope image, and then sometimes the whole IMAX screen, which is roughly a one to four to one, one four to one aspect ratio was used. So what aspect ratio did you actually compose for, and, and how do you take into account this reality nowadays that a major action film gets exhibited in multiple formats. I was shooting the movie, I had no idea it was going to be an IMAX release as well. Um, we composed and shot for 240 Cinemascope, and um, that's the format it was composed and shot for. Obviously, you've got a lot of peripheral. I believe when David Tui did the IMAX conversion, whenever they had shots in the movie that had a large vista, he didn't want to lose any of that information that they'd, they'd created digitally so he kept it at 240 and when it when it was um, I guess more about the dialogue and the performances inside the way station or the ship whatever he went to the one one four four is the one I think um, aspect ratio um, I haven't yet seen it uh, uh, IMAX I will try and see it before I head back to Australia um, it'll be interesting and that was only the three quarter two-thirds chip sorry that wasn't that wasn't the full full uh, chip you know so I'd le- be interested to see what the result is because they do their own 4k mm-hmm. um, transfer so looking back were there any particular sequences or moments that we haven't talked about that stand out as particularly unusual or challenging in the movie pretty much all the all the, the movie was pretty challenging throughout we shot it in I think 49 days which should be a feather in the cap to all the crew and, and the people involved, because to do a film of that nature on stage in 49 days is, is a great achievement. I, I guess the end sequence with Vin fighting the creatures and um, and the Matt Nabel character fighting the creatures, where, where you know, there's a sequence where they're, they're, they're back-to-back and they're warding off the uh, the mud demons coming at them. And, uh, and, and, and in actual fact, we had large melons on sticks 
that they were hacking with swords and, and shooting and, and it's quite funny to shoot a sequence like that where these guys are going around and, and fighting and hacking these pieces of melon and slicing with swords and uh, and then to come back and see the creatures is pretty amazing, pretty clever. That was a, that was a difficult scene um, to shoot. It's just the time factor. To shoot a movie like that, an extra movie, the time factor is, is you know, uh, is critical. We didn't have a lot of time, so I would have to try and work out the lighting with David that we shoot one direction, we milk one direction, milk one direction, then we can swing it around. And by using the LeMays, it means I didn't have individual light sources. I could just swing a 20 by 8 foot LeMay around, uh, 180 degrees, and spin the 10Ks, bring them down on a truss frame, motorized truss, spin them into it, take them back up and angle them down. And Bobby Bayless, the key grip from Canada, did a wonderful job. Um, we didn't have the money to have all the frames and all the lames on truss frames, so he did it with the old style, with ropes and pulleys. You know, it was like a, like a, a ship up there with all these bits of rope hanging down. And Johnny Lewin, the um, gaffer, excellent. Um, he did a great job of, with the lighting and rigging everything. And uh, it, it, for me, it was a, a very good experience. The first time I'd worked in Montreal, I'd worked in Canada twice before, and I've always had a good experience uh, wherever I worked. But uh, it, was a, it was a very good shoot. I enjoyed every minute of it. Do you find that along with the challenges of having to shoot something on a more limited budget and limited schedule, are there also advantages in the sense that you're sort of forced to operate more on your, you know, instinct and first reactions to things? Exactly. Um, it brings out the real filmmaker in you. Um, when you have endless amount of money and endless amount of time, you tend to make um, shortcuts or you tend to ignore things. I think when you're up, when your back's against the wall, it brings out the filmmaker in you, you know. People talk about Mad Max, which was, um, you know, $350,000 budget or whatever it was. That was a long time ago though. And, uh, but you know, and the unique thing about Mad Max is we had like a 12 week shoot, I think, which is quite rare in those days. And, um, and because none of us got paid much, but um, that was filmmaking in the raw. And I think the independent films that don't have a lot of money, don't have a lot of time, it, it does bring out Filmmaker. There's certain things about Riddick that show up because of the lack of funds, lack of money put into it. Um, I won't be specific, but there are a couple of things in it where tongue in cheek, you know, the, the trained eye will think it's a bit hokey, but the untrained eye, I don't think the masses would notice. Some of the visual effects shots, for instance, are a bit basic, but um, you know, in the context, it, it works, I think. We've, you've touched on this a little bit, but I, I guess I want to wrap up by asking about your sort of overall filmmaking philosophy, because as I noted in the intro, you've got a number of areas of expertise, including violent R-rated action films, and then the other end of the tonal spectrum with stuff like Scooby-Doo. Um, so are there things that carry over across all kinds of movies, or is each film its own beast in terms of figuring out your visual style and overall approach? I think each film's a beast in itself. Of course, it's, it's such a different structure. It's not only the technicalities, it's the, it's the personalities. You know, some directors are technically oriented, some directors are not. Uh, and I, obviously my clo closest collaboration is with the director and the, the, the visual style and the production designer. Um, I've been very lucky. I've had such a cross-section of films that I've done in my career. When I did the first Mad Max, you suddenly get slotted. I slotted in, I could only do action, and I got you know, a lot of approaches, well, I think for, for, for many years after Mad Max 1, I didn't do a movie, but um, uh, you get slotted into a certain style of film, but I've been lucky, I've been able to do a lot of varied genres, you know, and, uh, and you know, the approach, I have the, the same approach, um, obviously. Thanks so much for coming in and, and talking with me about Riddick. This has been Jim Hempel and David Egby, ACS, talking about Riddick for the American Cinematographer Podcast. 
This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography. 